Welcome, my name is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and we thank you for taking some time to listen to some audio recordings from the pulpit of the Riverview Baptist Church. Our desire is to show the Lord high, holy, and lifted up, as well as try to be a blessing to those through the Word of God. Please enjoy this message, and we pray that it will be a blessing to your life. And if you wouldn't mind to take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to the Old Testament book of Joel. The Old Testament book of Joel and Joel in chapter number 2. The book of Joel and chapter number 2. Now, as we're going through the minor prophets, we're taking one minor prophet a week, Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. And the purpose is to give you a taste for yourself about these wonderful minor prophets, to be able to see a little bit more of their context. And that's certainly what we wanted to do. On Sunday morning, we took time to open up the book of Joel and give the emphasis that God has given about the great day of the Lord, the judgment of God, and give the prophecies that are along with it. In addition, in the midst of all this prophecy, there's a specific prophecy that God had made in the book of Joel, chapter number 2, that was referred to in the New Testament. And this is what we want to explore today. That whenever you can have a passage of Scripture that the New Testament gives a commentary on, we definitely want to explore it and make sure that we get the correct interpretation by seeing how God put emphasis and interpreted on, the message, on that specific passage. So if you wouldn't mind to take your copy of the Word of God, and turn with me to the book of Joel, the book of Joel in chapter number two, the book of Joel chapter number two, and let's pick it up in verse number 27, the book of Joel chapter two, and in verse 27, the word of God says this, and ye shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord, your God and none else. And my people shall never be ashamed. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see, shall see visions and also upon the servants and upon the headmaidens in those days will I pour out my spirit and I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth blood and fire and pillars of smoke and the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as the Lord hath said, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. And if you're in the habit of marking things in your Bible, would you mark a phrase that is repeated in two different verses in this portion of Joel? Joel chapter 2 and verse number 28, I will pour out my spirit. And then once again in verse number 29, I will pour out my spirit. And with the Lord's help, we want to see the emphasis that God is placing here in the book of Joel chapter number 2, I will pour out my spirit. And if you wouldn't mind, let's go to the Lord together and let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for you being a wonderful God. Lord, we thank you for this evening here and we're asking that we could put our thoughts and our attention, our mind upon thee tonight. That we would look up to you and see what you would have for us. To see what you want to explain to us. To see what you want to get accomplished. And that we could see 
what your desire is by your spirit. That what does it mean that you would pour out your spirit? What does it mean of this idea of revival? Help us to understand even more and not only seek after it, but desire and thirst after it as well. Give us great understanding and we love you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you wouldn't mind, take your copy of the Word of God and now turn with me to the New Testament book of Acts. The New Testament book of Acts in chapter number 2. Remember in the book of Joel, it's talking about the great day of the Lord. <laughs> and when it refers to that, it's speaking the idea of judgment. And with the minor prophets, it speaks about lots about judgment. But then it always goes back to Israel and Judah, and gives them encouragement that God is not going to leave them nor forsake them, that God still has a plan and he's going to continue to work towards them and for them, especially at the end of days. He never leaves them without hope. Well, as we find our way to the book of Acts in chapter number two, we could see that this passage in Joel is being referred to in the context of what we commonly call the day of Pentecost. If you would remember that Jesus Christ had traveled on this earth for three um, <laughs> 33 years with his, and three and a half years was with his disciples. As he had traveled with them, he tried to encourage them, tried to teach them. And then Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and for mine. He was buried in a borrowed tomb and then he rose again the third day. He spent 40 days in a resurrected state, spending time with the disciples and trying to give them last minute preparation. And then he ascended to heaven. After they followed his instructions, and we'll get to those in a second, an amazing event occurred that we find recorded in the book of Acts in chapter number 2. The book of Acts, chapter number 2, and for context's sake, let's go ahead and get a good running start at this. In the book of Acts, chapter 2, notice with me in verse number 1. Acts, chapter 2, and verse number 1. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were <coughs> with all one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. And now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded because that every man heard them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born, Parthians and Medes and Iliamites and dwellers at Mesopotamia and in Judah and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and Pergia and Pamphylia and Egypt and parts of Libya and Cyrene and strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians, we do hear them speak in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. And they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, What meaneth this? Others mock, saying, These men are full of new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, 
Be this known unto you and hearken to my words. For these are not drunken as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it came to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men dream dreams. And on my servants and my headmaidens will I pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above, and the signs in earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. And the sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood, before that great and notable day of the Lord come." And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so as we see this, Peter stands up in this day of Pentecost, this amazing day of Pentecost. And he's answering a reply that happened. Now, how did this all come about? We'll speak more about this in specific But they had gotten together and they had prayed under the orders of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as they had waited for the period that God had wanted them to wait, and God poured down his Holy Spirit from heaven. And as God poured his Holy Spirit from heaven, he put it upon those who were the members of the church of Jerusalem at that time. And they all began to speak. And as they began to work with people, the people who were there at Jerusalem began to hear in their own language. Now, this is important to note that notice in verse 7, and they were all amazed and marveled, said one to another, are not all these that speak Galileans? Now, this is a specific thing because the Galileans were known to be rough and tumble fishermen. Their English was very bad English. Horrible grammar. If you look at them, you're not looking at a Harvard graduate. You're looking at someone who had to leave school in life in order to work a job and to pay for his family. He's not very well trained. Their language is very crass and very crude, very basic. In fact, Peter, not only what you look at him, he was not someone you would see, there is the summa cum laude. There is the salutatorian. There's the valedictorian. You're looking at a big burly guy, rough and calluses all over, very weathered face. And at one time in his life, he cussed like a sailor. He was a very much <coughs> known for it. Galileans were known all throughout that region at that time that if you wanted to call someone in our equivalent a backwoods redneck, that's what a Galilean would be. And so you're not looking at someone who graduated from Princeton or Harvard or Yale. He didn't go to Oxford or Cambridge. He didn't have the best education. He didn't even have Bible college training. And they could tell by the ones that are speaking to him, these are not educated guys. Then how in the world from these crazy fishermen and the people that traveled with him, do I hear as they speak my own language? Now remember that Where God had placed Israel was a land bridge between between three continents. That they had Africa to the south. They had Asia to the east. They had to the north Europe. And that at any time, especially in the Galilean area, but also in Jerusalem, they had 70 different language groups that spoke at the time. If you can imagine going to Chicago and all the language groups that are spoken in Chicago... 
And yeah, sure, most people can understand English, but there is something about hearing a message in your own language. And so as the disciples are there, they weren't trained. They weren't trained to become missionaries. They weren't taking special classes on these other languages. But God supernaturally had poured out his spirit. And the, by his spirit, they began to speak in tongues. The word tongues means a known language, not an unknown language, not a language of angels, but a known language, meaning that Egyptian and Parthian and Persian and so if you can imagine, here's John, the beloved, and he begins to talk to someone, and they're from Egypt, and when he's speaking to him, the Egyptian person says, you're speaking Egyptian to me. You're speaking in my native tongue. Maybe it's Thomas that comes up, and he begins to speak someone about the things of God. And the Persian goes, you're speaking in my language. You're speaking Persian. You're Galilean. I'm hearing it in Persian. And notice again all these language groups. Verse number 9. The Parthians and the Medes and the Elamites and the dwellers of Mesopotamia and in Judah and Cappadocia and Pontus and in Asia, Pergi and Pamphylia and Egypt and the parts of Libya and Cyrene and the strangers of Rome and Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians. We do hear them speak in our, our tongues the wonderful works of God. God had supernaturally given his Holy Spirit to kind of put emphasis, especially for the Jewish believers, the Jewish people, that this was of God. They needed something supernatural to understand that God was doing something special in what God had instituted as the church. The Bible explains later that the Jews require a sign. Why do they require a sign? Because God had revealed a whole bunch in the Old Testament, but they needed a sign to prove that this thing of the church was something that was God-ordained. And so God put his Holy Spirit. And listen, all these people came to know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. It will go on and explain it more. But they're hearing this in their own languages. And then Peter gets up because people don't know how to respond to this. Oh, you know what? They're just drunk. No, we're not drunk. It's three. Uh, it's the third hour. It's nine o'clock in the morning. We're not drunk. Let me tell you what it is. It's the Holy Spirit of God. God prophesied this in the book of Joel. And he went on and quoted the book of Joel, the passage that we just read, and said God had poured out his spirit upon his people to empower his church to reach the world. This was always God's plan. And God had prophesied it. But I also want to remind you that the book of Joel, the prophecy that was quoted there, was only partially fulfilled in the book of Acts chapter 2. It is more completely fulfilled in the book of Revelation chapter 7. For the sake of time, I'm not going to turn there, but I encourage you to read it for yourself. But in the book of Revelation chapter number 7, you have 12,000 converts from each tribe of Israel. And these Hebrew, notice I said Hebrew and not Jewish. Jewish people come from one tribe. Here they have 12,000 converts from each of the 12 tribes that are converted to God, one to the Lord, and God sends them out as evangelist missionaries to the rest of the world until every nation, every tongue, and every kindred heard the gospel. 
And God did it by his power and by his spirit. That is a great revival. So much that more people are saved in that period in history than any other time. So if we were to put this together and put in blocks to it, that at the day of Pentecost, God empowered the church by his spirit. In the book of Revelation chapter 7 is what we call the tribulation period. And God is fulfilling the book of Joel by completing what God had promised to do to work with the Hebrew people by pouring out his spirit upon the people and people are getting saved. And so may we say that from the period of the empowering of the church to the completion in the book of Revelation from one point to another, we're in the, pow- in the period of revival. We are in the period where God has given us access by his spirit to be poured upon us to see something amazing happen. In fact, because God's empowering of the church, the natural state of the church should be revival. And any church that is not in revival is an abnormal church from what God designed it to be. May we say that most churches are abnormal now from what God designed? Because we don't have revival and we don't have the outpouring of God's spirit. You understand this is a big deal. The idea of these last days or the last days before Christ's return is a period that's supposed to be, re- be marked by God's pouring of a spirit. And the empowering of his people for God's work. Revival is available for us today. The problem is we don't want revival. Now, with this, that's all introduction. Let's try to get to the nuts and bolts of this. The first thing I want to try to explain is what is revival? What is revival? Revival could be stated like this. Of course, you ask any preacher, they may have a different definition. But here's a good summary of what revival is. Revival is the outpouring of God's spirit upon his people Convicting God's people of sins and bringing them to the place of complete obedience towards him with an awareness and seeking of God. Now that's pretty long. Let me see if I can break it down. Revival is the outpouring of God's spirit. Without God's spirit, there is no revival. We have to have God's spirit that is poured upon his people. And when God's spirit is poured upon it according to the Bible. One of the first works of the Holy Spirit is to convict God's people of sins and bringing them to the place of complete obedience. You understand when it's God's revival comes out, God's people will not say no to God. We want to be obedient to God. God, whatever you'd have me to do. And along with it comes an awareness and seeking after God. We want God. That's what God's spirit does. This outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Now, revival is not an accident. Some people treat revival like this, that they think it's like a rain cloud up in the sky, and we'll be lucky if the rain cloud just happens to be right over us and then opens up and begins to pour on us. Revival is not an accident. It's not something that we wait to happen. Someone said it is the proper use of constituted means, meaning that... It's when God's people have a determination to follow after God and expect God to do something that what's going to happen, (laughs) that God's going to pour out his spirit. Now, there's no formula. We cannot make revival fall. We have to understand that. But we can be prepared for a revival and an expectation that God's going to keep his promises. 
Now, revival is not an explosion. Some people have an idea reading revival or hearing things about revival that all of a sudden we're sitting in church and then all of a sudden revival happens and everybody goes, Woohoo! It's great! It's wonderful! No, revival is not a sudden explosion. But instead, it starts as a little fire that begins to spread. Revival starts with one person. One person desiring, I want God and I want his power. I want what God can do. I desire it more than anything else. God, please. And as they give themselves to the Lord, the fire begins to spread to another and to another and to another. Revival is something that takes time. It's not something that's all of a sudden. You know, sometimes we expect it to be all of a sudden. We show up to that one service, that preacher says that one thing, and all of a sudden everyone's right with God. No, it is an idea that people get more and more conscious of God, more and more seeking for God, more and more of a desire, praying and working towards it, and then God brings his revival to come. Revival is the proper use of constituted means, but it still needs the power of God. Now, as also a warning, revival is not soul winning. However, soul winning will be a result of revival. So we have to understand that just because people are still going out and telling people about the Lord, which we should, that's not revival. We're thankful when people come to know Christ. Remember, revival carries the idea of life again, not new life, but life again. People who are, who are not saved, they're dead in their trespasses and sin. There is no life. When they get saved, they get life. Revival is taking those that are alive and refiring them back up. Revival is not for the lost world. It's for the saved. We need revival. We need revival. So we explained a little bit what revival is. Let's ask another question. What does a revival consist of? What does a revival consist of? Now, I'm going to give some things from the Bible, but these things are what all revivals have in common. Whether they're found in the Bible or in history, all of revivals have these in, in common. Now, this is important because if we have a desire to see revival, then these things have to be in place. Notice, if you don't mind, Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1 and verse number 14. And uh, as we get ready to read the verse, it says, These all continued with one accord in prayer and in supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, with his brethren. All revivals start with prayer. All revivals start with prayer. Prayer. Now, why is this a big deal? Because this is what God had said. Twice, God had the Lord Jesus Christ had told his disciples, both in the gospel record of Luke and in the book of Acts, before he ascended, our gospel record of John, I want you to tarry in Jerusalem. That means wait into Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes. What that meant is that they were not supposed to do anything except wait on God until revival came. Then they were supposed to do God's work. 
Now, waiting on God is a definition that we have to define a little bit because we think waiting on God is tapping our foot. Come on, God, any time now, hurry up. But that's not waiting on God. Waiting on God carries the idea of seeking after him. God, I'm putting myself at your disposal. I need you to work. Lord, we're expecting you to do something. It's not just sitting there twiddling our thumbs. It's not staring out in space. But waiting on God carries the idea that we're seeking after him. And that's what Jesus told him to do. I want you to wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes. I don't want you to do anything. I'm not expecting you to go soul winning. I'm not expecting, I want you to stay here until it comes. There was that expectation to wait for them <laughs> to come. Now, with that, we see that revival is not instant. In fact, if you would continue in the book of Acts and read from it, after Jesus went up to heaven, they went back down and said, all right, God, we're looking for your spirit. We're looking for revival. And day one happened and he didn't come. Day two, we're waiting for you, God. We're expecting your spirit and nothing happened. Day three, they continue to pray. Day four, they continue to pray. Day five, still nothing, still praying. Day six, still praying. Day seven, and finally God's spirit came down. One of the problems that we have with praying for revival is that we pray for revival. Oh, it didn't show up. And then we walk away. We may be reminded a message later. So, all right, God, I'm praying for revival again. And then we walk away. But the idea of revival is that we pray until it comes. We pray until it comes. Every revival always starts with prayer. Whether it's a biblical recorded revival or a historical revival, it always started with an element of prayer. People got together and they prayed. And they waited for God to pray. And sometimes it may have taken a while, but they didn't stop praying. But they prayed and they prayed. One of the reasons why we don't have revival is because we're not consistent in prayer for revival. We don't get together and expect the revival to come. This is so important of waiting for God to come in prayer. All revivals start with prayer. Notice something else that we learn about revival. In action, um, I'll give you the heading first. All revivals are an outpouring of God's spirit. All revivals are an outpouring of a spirit. Notice with me in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. But ye shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Here Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's telling them you need to wait. And he's telling them the Holy Spirit's going to come and he's going to give you power. The Holy Spirit's going to pour out on you. Notice with me in chapter 2, verse number 2. And suddenly there was a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind. And it filled the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues as as of fire. And it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. We see that this revival. It is an outpouring of God's spirit. You cannot have revival without God's spirit. You can't manufacture it. You can't work it up. And may I also say you can't schedule it. God is not dependent upon us. But we can 
take advantage of God's promises and have an expectation that God is going to do it. But there is no formula and there's no waving the hands. There's no standing in one leg and whatnot. And there's no such thing as manufacturing it. God's spirit has to come down. That is a hallmark of revival. Something else that we understand here. That's a hallmark of all revivals. That all revivals consist. They all start with prayer. It's the outpouring of God's spirit. We also know this. All revivals require God's people to repent and become obedient. All revivals require God's people to repent and become obedient. Obedient. Notice with me in Acts chapter 2 and verse number 37. <clears throat> now, they speak in tongues. People hear the message of the gospel in their own language. They ask about what's going on. They're confused. They've never seen it before. To have some educated guy speaking to me in my own language. And we could tell it's supernatural. This guy didn't study it. They're asking questions. So Peter gets up and he preaches a message. And he starts with Joel. Open your Bibles to me, with me to Joel chapter 2. And he takes the text and then he explains the text. Explains what's going on. And as a result... Notice what happens when people hear this message. Verse 37. Now when they, the audience, heard this, they were pricked in their hearts. And they said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Start off with this. They heard the message of God and these people were pricked in their hearts. They were convicted. God was bringing them to the place that there was something that needed to be changed. Verse 38. Then Peter said unto them, Repent, and be ye baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Notice this, that they had two things that they were asked to do. First of all, repent. Repent means a change of mind that leads to a change of behavior. Again, part of the reason why we don't have revival is because we like sin. If you truly believe that you are the person holding back revival, then what needs to be changed? If you can answer that question, that's what needs to be changed. We are holding back revival. I need a change. You should be able to use those personal pronouns. What do I need to do? You can't blame someone else. Well, so-and-so needs to fix this and so-and-so. No, no, no. What do I need to do? What do I need to do? I need to change. What needs to be removed from my life so I could see God? What needs to be fixed in my life? What do I need to forsake so I could be close to him? And then notice this and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Son. It carries the idea that there's a willingness to be obedient. And there's other texts that kind of backs off this, backs up this idea of obedience here with the idea of baptism. Is there anything you won't do? Anytime that you draw a line in the sand and say, I'll do all this stuff, but I'll never do this. You cannot be filled with God's spirit. You're holding back revival. I don't care what the preacher says. I'm not changing this. You can't have revival. You can't be filled with the spirit. I don't care what God says. I'll do anything, but I'll never go there. You cannot have revival. If there's anything you are not willing to be obedient for. You understand what God is looking for? Is people to say, God, whatever you tell me to do, I'll do it. 
That's part of revival. And that's part of the preparation of revival. Setting ourselves at God's disposal. God, I'm expecting you to work. God, show me what I need to do. I'll do anything. I'll fix anything. I'll forsake anything. Which, once again, is why we don't have revival. Is because we have so many things we're not willing to forsake. We're not willing to change. I don't care. I'm not getting rid of this in my life. I like this too much. I'm keeping this. And thus we don't have revival. Because people won't let those things go. In order to be able to follow God more completely. If there's anything in your life that you say, I won't change. You can't have revival. You are holding back revival. There's a desire of it. We also see something else. All revivals bring his people to a concern of souls. All revival bring God's people to a concern of souls. Notice with me in chapter 2 and verse 41. Uh, uh, verse 21 first. As he was talking in the book of Joel, as we went through that, remember he said, I want to pour down my spirit, the People are going to prophesy. They're going to dream dreams. I'm going to do all these miracles. Verse 21. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Why is God pouring out his spirit? So people could call upon the name of the Lord. Notice in verse 41. As a result of Peter's message. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. You understand that part being filled with God's Spirit puts ourselves at God's disposal for us to use to see people saved. May I prove that to you? Notice with me in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 again. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. But ye shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. So notice the Holy Spirit's going to come upon them. And as a result of the Holy Spirit coming upon them and giving them power, ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world. You know, Jesus gives this principle, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Notice this, our part is to follow God. And if we follow God, Jesus does the making. We don't make ourselves soul winners. God makes us a soul winner. Our part is to follow after him. Now take the reverse of that. If you are not a soul winner, then it's evidence that you're not following God because he didn't make you. It's that simple. Follow me and I will, that's a promise, I will make you a soul winner. I'll make you a fisher of men. The Bible says that same thing here in Acts. I will pour my spirit upon you. And as a result of my spirit being upon you in power, ye shall be witnesses. That all revivals have this in common. That when God's people get revived, they'll all have a concern for souls. Soul winning is a result of revival. It's not revival itself, but it is a result. Notice with me the wording of this. In Acts chapter 2. And notice with me in verse number 4. And notice this. And they. Notice it wasn't just Peter. It didn't say and Peter was filled with the Holy Ghost. And they. Who's this they here? Well we know. Who is this they? Look back with me in Acts chapter number 1. And verse 14. 
verse 13, get a good running start. And when they were come into the uh, when they come in, they went to an upper room where they abode both Peter and James and John and Andrew and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon Zealots and Judas the brother of James. And these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women, Mary and his mother of Jesus with his brethren. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples and said, the number of the names together were about 120. So who's the they here? Well, those who were part of that church. Verse number four again. And they were filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues. What happened in Acts chapter two is as the church had been gathering together waiting for God, God poured out his spirit. And as he promised, as they poured out his spirit, they would be witnesses starting in Jerusalem. God poured out his spirit. They were in the upper room starting in verse number two. Uh, number two, or chapter number two. Who was there? The church, 120 of them. It lists some of the people there. The Holy Spirit came upon 120 of them. They went out to Jerusalem and began to speak to people one-on-one. -on -one. And as they began to speak to people one-on-one, -on -one, those people heard the message in their own language. You understand what we have here is that all of them went out. Now, as people were confused, what's going on here? Peter got up and preached a message, but initially it was all the church together. Not one person, all of them as they were filled with the Holy Spirit, who went out as God promised in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. What do we understand here? What Jesus said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. When revival comes, there will be concern of soul by those who are revived to go out and tell others. This is a part of it. Because why does God want the church revived? So we could sit in our own building and make goofy sounds and speak in crazy languages? Why does he want us filled with the Holy Spirit? So we can reach the world. Being filled with the Spirit is not for entertainment. It's for a purpose. Because God is not willing that any shall perish, but all shall come to repentance. This is a hallmark of all revivals. These things that I said... All revivals start with prayer. All revivals are an outpouring of God's spirit. All revivals require God's people to repent and become obedient. To get right, thoroughly right with God. And all revivals bring his people to a concern of souls. 3,000 souls got saved that day. Because people talked to others. And brought them to the meeting that Peter ended up preaching. An impromptu meeting. But they brought them to the meeting. They were concerned. Those 3,000 people, where did they show up from? It wasn't that Peter stood up and 3,000 people gathered. They went out and talked to those 3,000 people. Then they gathered. Isn't that amazing? This is what God does with this. Which now brings us to the idea of examples of revival. Before I start giving these examples, let me tell you what others have said about revival. If God visited his people before, he can and will do it again. James McQuilkin. Spurgeon said this, A genuine revival without joy in the Lord is impossible as spring without flowers or a day dawn without light. The Bible, <laughs> G. Campbell Morgan said this, Revival cannot be organized 
But we can set our sails to catch the wind from heaven when God chooses to blow upon his people once again. Andrew Murray, the great writer of prayer, said this. A true revival means nothing less than a revolution. Casting out the spirit of worldliness. Making God's love triumphant in the heart. Ian e. Bounds, another author of so many books on prayer, said, It is not great talents or great learning or great preachers that God needs, but men great in holiness. Charles Finney said, If the presence of God is in the church, the church will draw the world in. If the presence of God is not in the church, the world will draw the church out. Vance Havner said this, Revival is the church falling in love with Jesus all over again. Oh, isn't that a true statement? Just to fall back in love. The book of Revelation gives a charge to one of the churches that you've lost your first love. You do all these great works. You're doing a lot of things well, but you're not in love with me anymore. I'm not your first love. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great uh, preacher and organizer of Preachers, teaching preachers how to preach. He said this, A revival means days of heaven upon the earth. And Andrew Murray, another great author on prayer, said a revived church is the only hope for a dying world. So if we want to have revival, we have to ask those who had revival. May I give you several examples let me take you first of all as we look at American history. We start with a man by the name of Jonathan Edwards. Before our country was even a country when we were still colonies, there was a man by the name of Jonathan Edwards who had taken over a small little church in the New England area and he had followed a very fiery preacher. The thing with excuse me, with Jonathan Edwards, is that he wrote out his entire messages word by word, and then he read them in a monotone voice, reading his entire message. Well, the church people loved their preacher, but they said, we can't deal with a monotone voice. Uh, we can't, well, something's got to change. So instead of rebelling and kicking their pastor out, they said, you know, preacher, we're coming up to you to say this is a concern. But we're letting you know that we're all fasting and praying for you that God would do something. That God would work. They started with the element of prayer. We want God to work and we want you to fast and prayer, pray. And we want to see what God's going to do. Well, of course, he took that very seriously when the church people come up to you and say they're disappointed in your messages. So he fasted and he prayer, prayed. And he got up on Sunday and had written out his message word by word like he had done before. And he read it. In the same voice I read before. But this time. When he gave the invitation. People about knocked over the pillars of the building. To get to the altar to get saved. What happened? The outpouring of God's spirit. And that message by the way was sinners in the hands of an angry God. Which that message was used to spark in our country. What was called the first great awakening. And it brought people to the realization for lots of people in churches that they weren't saved in the first place. And so, in essence, the first great awakening was not a revival, but actually an evangelistic movement where it realized that people were saved. However, out of that movement 
came a small Baptist church called Sandy Creek. And out of Sandy Creek, they had a small congregation like this. And the people said, you know what, we need to have a revival. And because of so many people getting saved, they said, you know what, we have a concern here. We need to get involved What God's involved. So they set themselves out to pray. And they set themselves to say, God, however you want to use us. And they made sure that they were thoroughly right with God. And out of Sandy Creek, small Baptist church, you could still go to it today, the, the fragments of that building, and see it for yourself. That church started 2,000 churches. And what was called the Sandy Creek Revival. As people got thoroughly right with God. Well as time went on. Our country was founded. And by the way. That first great awakening. Was the catalyst of helping us to start our country. With a view of God. It could easily be said through history. If it was not a first great awakening. There would be no revolution. It was that important for the people to be thoroughly right with God. To respond to God properly with all the things that were going on in England at that time. Well as our country was founded. God used another man. By the name of Charles Finley. Finley to be the catalyst for the second great awakening. As many churches were starting. They had lost their power. And they had lost the power of the spirit. And God used Charles Finney. To go and preach. May I give an excerpt of just one example. Of these things that happened. This is from his own autobiography. He said at this time. I was earnestly pressed to remain at Evans Mills. And finally gave them encouragement. That I would abide with them at least one year. Being engaged to Mary, I went there to Whitestown, Oneida County. This is back in uh, New York, when New York was considered a wilderness, if you can imagine that. And he said, I was married in October. So he had been preaching revivals, seeing lots of things happen. Found a girl, his heart went thump, thump, and she went thump, thump. He wilted, and she wilted, and they got married. (coughs) And so they were married in October. That's important. Remember October. In 1824. My wife had made preparations for housekeeping and a day or two after our marriage I left her to return to Evans Mill to obtain conveyance to transport our goods to that place. I told her that she might expect me in about a week. So again, this is before cars, it's still horse and buggies. He got married, spent a couple days with his new bride, and then he went back to town with the purpose of getting a wagon to get the rest of the goods to transport to home. The fall previous to this, I had preached a few times in the evening at a place called Perch River, still further northwest from Evans Mill, about a dozen miles. I spent one Sabbath at Evans Mills and intended to return for my wife about the middle of the week. But a messenger from Perch River came up that Sabbath and said that there had been a revival working its way slowly among the people ever since I preached there, and he begged me to go down and preach there at least once more. I finally set an appointment to be there Tuesday night. But I found the interest so deep that I stayed and preached Wednesday night and Thursday night. And I finally gave up returning that week for my wife and just continued to preach night after night. The revival soon spread to the direction of Brownsville, a considerable village several miles, I think, in the southwestern direction of the place. Finally, under the pressing invitation of a minister in Church of Brownsville, I went there and spent the winter, having written to my wife that there were such circumstances that I must defer coming back to her until God opened the way. 
Early in the spring of 1825, I left Brownsville with my horse and cutter to go after my wife. It had been, I'd been absent six months since our marriage. As the mails were between us, we had seldom been able to exchange letters. I drove on some 15 miles and the roads were very slippery. My horse was smooth shod and I found that I must have his shoes reset. I stopped at Lay Rayville, a small village about three miles south of Evans Mill. While my horse was being shod, the people found out I was there, ran to me, and wanted to know if I would not preach at one o'clock in the schoolhouse, for they had no meeting place. At one, house, at one o'clock, the house was packed. And while I preached, the Spirit of God came down with great power upon His people. So great and manifest was the outpouring of the Spirit, that in compliance to their earnest entreaty, I concluded to spend the night there and appointed another meeting in the morning. And in the morning, I appointed another in the evening. And soon I found that I could not go any further after my wife. I told a brother that if he would take my horse and cutter and go after my wife, I would remain. And so he did. I went on preaching from day to day and night to night. And there was a powerful revival. By the way, that's one account over and over and over that happened. Where God just poured out his spirit. And he would just try to go. And he'd end up staying in a place. Watching God come down. And people get right. And people get saved. Entire uh, cities and villages. Coming to know Jesus Christ. As their personal savior. Over and over these things happen. Well of course. Things continue to spread. <clears throat> God still did revival here and there. And other and Welsh, the Welsh have had several great revivals, whether it was in the 1850s or the 1950s. One of the Welsh revivals started with a man who overheard a lady talk about her salvation. He soon got saved and began to witness. He and a friend began to read books on revival and started a weekly prayer meeting. After 50 weeks of weekly prayer, God began to stir the hearts of those around them. Soon churches had to turn people outside because the buildings couldn't fit them all. People prayed on the streets and in the mud with the rain falling around them. People just getting saved. You understand revivals happen. There was a revival in Georgia in the uh, 1900s. I don't remember the exact year, but they called it the singing revival. And back then they still had trolley cars as public education. And people get on the trolley cars and they would sing hymns. You would go to J.C. Penney's and if someone began to shop, they would begin to um, just start singing a song. And soon the entire J.C. Penney store would be singing those hymns. Can you imagine such a thing? You understand revivals are something God expects to happen. Over and over as they followed Billy Sunday, Billy Sunday would come to town. And when he would first approach the town, the town would be full of, the jails would be full. But Billy Sunday would come and have people walk that old sawdust trail and get saved in an old fashioned altar. That they would go back and they would check the town and a year later the jails were still empty. Because people were so right. We know the Wesleyan revival, which is equivalent to the first great awakening, that they had towns in, in England where there was no concern about the Bible. There was one town that said the only, there was only one Bible in town and it was used in the bar to hold up a, a chair so it wouldn't wobble. One year after John Wesley came, 
the bars were still empty of patrons. Some one guy came in and asked for a drink and he said, I'm sorry, we don't have anything to offer. He says, why not? He says, there was a man by the name of John who came to preach and people got saved and people got right. And those revivals had lasting effects. It wasn't just once and gone, but it had lasting far reaching effects upon its community as people got right with God and watched God work. And let me tell you, we're still in the period of revival. In the late 1800s, people were pretty much uh, resigned to the fact that they were in the last days if they only knew what the days were going to end up being like. But in the late 1800s, people were like, well, we're in the place where everyone's cold and no one could do anything. And they had a big meeting in Chicago about why we can't have revival. And so they had preachers come around and they were saying, we don't need to preach about revival anymore. Revival can't happen. But... Nearby in a neighborhood, there was a band by the name of D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody only had an eighth grade education. And to hear him speak was very painful with his grammar. But the Holy Spirit was upon him. And he just started to witness to person. And then someone heard. And next thing you know, he had a gathering. And he was trying to look for a place where we could meet all this. Meanwhile, this big auditorium that only had a few people about why revival didn't work. They broke for lunch. And D.L. Moody says, well, they're not using it. Let's go in here. And they filled up the entire building that was advertised. You can't have revival with a great revival that was going on. (laughs) Revival is something that not only can happen, God desires to happen. You understand, God wants that to happen here. As we look through history, I love history because it teaches us so much. Wisconsin in the 1840s was concerned to make sure that they had a Bible teaching, preaching church in every county of Wisconsin. And so in the 1840s, the churches had got together with a concerted effort to make sure that there was a church started in every county. And by the mid-1840s, they had succeeded. In every county in Wisconsin, there was a Bible teaching church. However, by the 1860s, as Irish um, settlers began to come over because of the potato famine, of course, the Irish were very Catholic. They began to settle all throughout Wisconsin. And as they began to settle and start Catholic churches, the Bible-believing churches got together, and there's actual letters of this where they're saying this, that they had determined they were not going to witness to any of the Catholics. They were just going to leave them alone. And because of their saying no, God dried up his spirit in Wisconsin. And all those churches that were started with a Bible teaching died and dried up. And it became such a place that Wisconsin was the deathbed. I mentioned two specific revivalists, D.L. Moody and, and, <clears throat> and Billy Sunday. They were known for having great revivals everywhere. Billy Sunday was invited to come for a revival meeting here in Wisconsin, preached a Sunday morning, packed up and left and said, this is the deathbed of preachers. Nothing could ever happen here and left. D.L. Moody came for one service and said, nothing could be happened here. God's moved his hand from Wisconsin. Nothing could be happened here. And he left. Wisconsin is one of the states that has never had revival. And it was because a group of people who knew the Bible made a decision that we're not going to follow after God. We're not going to witness. We're not going to set ourselves. 
And God withdrew his power. But God is starting to do something now. He's starting to work. And he's putting churches in places. And he's putting people in place. And if you could forgive the personal remarks. I believe that the Lord's placed me here. For such a time as this. And that God's starting to put revivals on. And we're watching churches that haven't been soul winning. Starting to soul win. Because of the influence of this church. You may not think that God is using you. But people are watching this church. And they're amazed. If you could imagine that. And they ask about it. And there's starting to be more of an influence. And I believe that God is starting to prepare for a revival. A major revival. One of those revivals that will be in the history books where we talk about. And I believe that God could start it here. Only if we let it. Only if we want it. This is why this preaching is so important. Because revival doesn't start with a combustion. It starts with a flame. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then, after those other things are done, then will I hear from heaven, forgive their sins, and heal their land. What's the healing that Wisconsin needs? We've never had revival. We've always had God's hand withdrawn from here because of the decisions that made. We need God's healing touch upon his land with a pouring of his spirit. No wonder that Wisconsin is considered the drunkenest state. Out of the 20, drunk, uh, 20 top drunkest cities in America, Wisconsin has 15 of them. You understand? Because they don't have hope, they have to turn to something else. I just read something this last week that there is an increase in teenage dementia because of drinking because they had nothing else to do during the quarantine. People have nothing to turn to now. They need to be shown that there's something they can turn to. And you understand, if a revival happens and the people are shown that God's, by God's spirit that God is real, they will come to him. They're looking for something different. You understand? It is in the darkest days, as I was telling you about John Wesley, how they had that the only Bible was used to prop up a chair in a bar to keep it from wobbling. And when John came and preached, it changed everything. And so much in that, that uh, revival in, in um, England, they actually had to retrain the mules because they didn't understand what their masters were saying because they weren't cursing anymore. They didn't know whether to go heal or move or whatever else. They actually had to retrain them. You understand? Our state needs revival. And it's not going to come just a sudden outburst. It's going to come as we catch on fire. As we humble ourselves and pray. And seek God's face. And turn from our wicked ways. When we get to the place where we put ourselves at God's disposal, God use me however you see fit, whatever you tell me to do. When we get to the place where we say, God, we're going to pray for revival until it happens. Then God could start us to catch on fire and watch that fire spread to other churches. And as the fire is spreading, we'll be witnessing and people will be getting saved. And that will cause the flames to grow. 
you understand God has put us here for such a time as this. And I believe it with all my heart that we get to be involved with what God wants to be doing. And if it doesn't happen, it's not God's fault because he's put everything in play. It's our fault for not seeking after God's revival. Not seeking for his spirit. When he says he can and wants to. And we're living in the time of revival. That the greatest revivals are still in the future. We can have it now. So it brings to you. What is your part to play? Remember when I said that all of the church. They were filled with the spirit. All of the church. They were set themselves. R.A. Torrey, who was a follower of D.L. Moody, gave this prescription revival. He said, I gave him this prescription all over the world and everywhere that it is employed, it always comes to pass because it's God's promise, not my prescription. But he said, this is the prescription revival. Just simple. Let a few people, and it doesn't need to be many, let a few people get thoroughly right with God thoroughly right with God. He said, until this is done, none of it will matter. Let a few people, and let it not be many, get thoroughly right with God. He said, second of all, that those few people would set themselves together for prayer until revival happens. Remember, I gave an incident where they prayed for 50 weeks. They prayed and determined to pray until revival come. He said, the third part, is that they set themselves at God's disposal for the reaching of souls. He says, that's it. That's it. Let a few people, and it doesn't need to be many, get thoroughly right with God. Let those few people set themselves for the purpose of prayer until revival comes. And then let those few people set themselves to be at God's disposal to be used for the reaching of souls. He says, everywhere I've given this prescription across the world, it has always worked. Always. Because it's God's promise, not mine. You understand we can't have revival. And if we don't have revival, it's not God's fault, it's our fault. What I'm asking is, do you have something inside of you? You look at your state and we see it and we see how needy it is and how dark it is and how much despair and how much without hope our state has. You work with people, you see people, you could see them there without hope. And hope is just around the corner. Hope is here. If we truly have a desire to see these people come to know Christ as our Savior, it's going to begin with God's pouring of a spirit upon us. Do you have something burning in you? Say, that's what I want. That's what I desire. As I made mention before, I think God has done some things this week for the purpose of grabbing our attention to stir things up. To let us realize how important eternity really is. Are we going to take advantage of what God is doing in our midst? Let us put our heart-filled prayer for revival. Thank you for listening to this audio message. This is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus. And I encourage you to take this information that you just received and make a specific decision to follow after the Lord. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me beg you to take the time 
to receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are saved, I encourage you to make a decision in your life to help you get closer with the Lord. If there's anything specific we can do to be a blessing or to pray for you, we encourage you. Look us up on the internet at riverviewbc.com. Once again, that's riverviewbc.com. Or if you would prefer to call us, you can give us a call at area code 920 Five three zero six three zero eight. Once again, that number is nine two zero five three zero six three zero eight. If there's anything we can do to be a blessing or an encouragement to you, please let us know. We would love to make ourselves available. Thank you.